continue our look at this book of the Bible, and now here we are in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and reflecting on these six verses, strikes me that what we have is a threat and a promise. You've heard of that, right? You ask the question, hey, is that a threat or a promise? And well, we get both of them in Scripture. Uh, One of the basic tools that we have as we approach God's Word is knowing that it's full of both the commands of God, along with its instructions, its laws, and with them threats, but also the promises of God, the things that God delivers, the things that we don't have responsibility for, but God delivers through Jesus Christ. This doesn't stop us from understanding also any of Jesus' words in respect to that dichotomy of threat and promise, even when Jesus himself is saying it. Remember, in John chapter 16, here he is with his disciples just before his uh, last week, his, his death and resurrection, his passion, the passion of Christ. And he's trying to comfort his disciples, and he says this, In the world you will have trouble. In the world you will have tribulation. Like, well, thanks a lot, Jesus. That sounds like a, a rough kind of promise if all you're saying is promises. This isn't a threat that says, hey, you better do this or else. It's just a description of where we are, isn't it? In this world you will have trouble. Not much of a promise. That is a threatening word. But what does Jesus say in the same breath? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. A promise that makes us conquerors. A promise that makes us more than conquerors, as Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. A promise that says because Christ has overcome the world, we have the means. We have the ability to live in this world. And that's where John goes on in this letter, 1 John chapter 2, to talk about how it is we live in the world. The comfort is in this one word, the Greek word for overcome. To conquer, to secure the victory, the verb nikao, nikao, to conquer, to overcome, to secure the victory. It gives us this noun, nike. Pronounce it, nike. How do you usually pronounce that word? Nike, with the swoosh, right? But that's not where John's thinking about Nike, Nike, or anybody in the Greek world from uh, the last 200 years before John was alive and writing this. They had another swoosh in mind, and that was the swoosh of those angelic wings from the winged Nike of Samothrace. Raise your hand real quick if you recognize that statue. All right, six people here have been to the Louvre in Paris. That's where that is. It's an old, old statue that scholars think was uh, created in honor of the victory of a ship in Thrace. And it was supposed to be uh, the angel or the goddess of victory that the Greeks worshipped. The goddess of victory alighting on the ship. Well, this is what people in the Greek world have in mind when they think of Nike or Nike. This is what Jesus has in mind, too, when he says, I have overcome the world. And John continues our letter with the central teaching in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He repeats it a couple of times. Not only does Jesus say, I have overcome the world, he says, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. Let's read it together. Uh, and since we have basically three sections... We're going to go left to right. This is section one. This is section two. And you all got to talk loud. This is section three over here, all right? 
Section one on the left, section two in the middle, section three on the right, and just bullet, bullet, bullet. Left, center, right. Let's do it. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's half of John's poem in these next couple of verses. The second half of the poem goes on from there as John emphasizes the point of our victory, where we are. I'm writing to you, young men. I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers. Listen to how how he finishes that up in verses 13 and 14. I write to you, children, because you know the Father, with a capital F. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He ends that poem just like he does in the first half, I'm writing to you because you've overcome the evil one. But he expands it at the end of that poem in something that every poetry major knows is called a triple crescendo plus climax. That's a literary device that says this is really important. A literary device that says this is the focus of this poem and this section of the letter. And it has to do with this overcoming, this victory. I want you to take a look real quick at this right side, this little picture here. Um, If we measured it out, it might be life-size on the screen, but it's far away, so it looks small to you. That statue is about eight feet tall, and it's been standing in the Louvre since the end of the 19th century. It's eight-foot-tall representation of the goddess Victory, originally erected to celebrate a naval conquest won by the Greek state of Rhodes. It's a celebrated sculpture, rightly so, as its masterful form and interplay between marble and empty space represents supernatural power struggling against sea and wind and other invisible forces. You can see the motion in the dress, and you can see the motion in the wings. This is unparalleled in ancient art prior to this. And its discovery has won the acclaim of critics and the imitation of modern artists imprinting Nikkei and Nike on the collective consciousness of Western heritage much more than just a Nike swoosh. But for all of its artistic mastery, the winged Nikkei of Samothrace is missing a couple of things. So now we get to play the home game. What's it missing? It has no head. Good job. It probably wasn't sculpted originally without a head. As a guy who deals with ancient studies all the time, we've got to imagine what must have been there. It probably did have a head. What else is it missing? Let's use our imagination. No arms. It probably did have arms as well. No head, no arms. It may be made of expensive marble. It may stand in the most famous museum of Europe. But it lacks its original limbs. It lacks its original glory. And most of all, it lacks something else. It lacks life. It's just a statue. It's just frozen in time right there. 
I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one, because you have victory. You have Nike. And this is no incomplete victory that John is talking about. It's the victory that has conquered all enemies of the Christian. The devil, the world, our own sinful flesh, conquered because of Christ's conquest. Christ swallowed up sin and death and all of the enemies of the Christian in one act. What we were talking about last week, the act of his resurrection. Conquering death and in so doing, conquering sin, conquering the devil. And this victory has a head. The head of the Christian, Jesus Christ. The head of the church, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's how John will say it also in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we trust in Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. That's where our identity is, according to John in this letter. But why does he make such a point of it? It's because of his emphasis on where we are. And that's where the second part of this letter goes. We are in the world. Hey, what do we think of when we think of the world? I don't know what I think of. Trees and flowers and chirping birds, bunny rabbits all through campus. You know, the world is kind of nice, right? In fact, God loves it. (laughs) It doesn't love it because it's good. That verse that we all know from John chapter 3, John's gospel, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to save the world because there was something worth saving. He did it because of his love, because there's something that needs saving. And this is how John talks about the world in 1 John, one of his great dualisms, those polarities between good and evil, light and darkness. Here it is, in Christ or in the world? In Christ or in the world? Remember that last week as we were talking about 1 John chapter 2, we ended with that profound identity that we are in Christ. That's why we have the victory, even if we find ourselves in the world. And that's the context in which we hear these last three verses of this section. So we're going to do it once again, left to right, 15, 16, 17, all right? Let's read it together. Verse 15, do not love the world Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Where do you abide? He says we abide forever as we do the will of God. 
As our identity in Christ translates into action in the world, it means that we don't identify with the world. It's sort of a stopover, just where we are temporarily. We're not owning here, we're just renting, like me in Southern California, maybe for the rest of my life, right? This is just a stopover. We're not owning here, we are renting. I am but a stranger here. Heaven is my home, goes the old Christian spiritual, the old Christian hymn. And so we need to ask, where do you abide? There's other verses in the New Testament that talk about being in the world, but not of the world. Have you seen those verses? Does that recall something, evoke something in you? Not of this world. Anybody have that sticker in the back of their truck next to Calvin making a statement about Ford or Chevy? The N-O-T-W, not of this world. Well, this is the idea that John's getting to. Where do you abide? Now, I don't have anything fancy to fill in there, but I want to talk about it. We abide in a place, we stay in a place where we find, number one, satisfaction. We abide in a place where we find our needs satisfied. And number two, you abide where you find security. The place where you find safety against all ill. There was a teacher of the church that said it this way one time. A god is anything that you flee to when you're in need. Anything that you run to when you're afraid. That becomes your god. You stack that up with a command from Scripture that says something like, do not have any other gods. Do not have the wrong god is another way of saying that. What are the wrong gods? And what's the right god? Where do you abide? Well, we abide in the wrong god if we're abiding in a thing where we don't find satisfaction for all things. And we're abiding in the wrong God if we're abiding in a place where we are not secure. So what is it that gives us that satisfaction, that security? This is how John ends. The one who is given eternal life abides forever with God in a resurrection life starting now. Christ proclaims his divinity, the fact that he is the right God proving it by his glorious resurrection on the third day. This is all about death and resurrection. So how can I get eternal life, abide forever with God right now? Well, God's done his part, raising Jesus from the dead. That leaves only one part for you and me. All we get to do is die. Die to self today. Die to self from the beginning of our Christian life. That's why Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6. At the beginning of it, he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death and raised again in our baptism to a new life that starts right now. That's what John means by abiding forever with him. This is our victory. Neither height nor depth, nor principalities, things present, nor things to come. Though the devil may hate us, he can never separate us from the wonderful love of God. We hyper-conquer. We are more than conquerors. This is no threat. This is a promise. You have overcome. 
you have the victory because you are in Christ. As our identity translates into action, our action confirms that identity. We are in Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our salvation, and not only ours, but salvation for the entire world. Bless us as we hear your word, learn it, read it, mark it, inwardly digest it, that it may be a blessing for us, knowing where our satisfaction comes from, knowing where our security lies, being in Christ. Amen.